Well, this morning, I'm going to bring a mission message, uh, but often uh, Luke 15 is, is not perceived that way in, um, in some ways. Um, to back it up, disciples who celebrate what God celebrates. Uh, but we're going to look at, uh, it's a really well-known passage. Uh, it's mostly known for the story of the prodigal son, but um, there's some hidden uh, gems in this passage, and we're going to explore uh, that this morning. Well, let's uh, begin in prayer. Our Father, what a blessing it is just to be together, uh, to be here before the Scriptures, Lord. We are so thankful that you have communicated to us, that you have revealed your word to us, and you revealed your living word, and we thank you, Father, for the life in Christ that we share through the Spirit. Lord, we are deeply humbled by your grace, and we thank you that we can come here together to listen to your Spirit through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. What if we are convinced about the way things are, but then reality unfolds? Here's some examples. It'll test your, uh, your history acumen. In 1911, there was Marshal Ferdinand Foch. He was the supreme commander of all French military forces on the eve of World War I. And uh, here is a claim that he made. Airplanes are interesting toys, but they have no military value. Uh, Not a prophet. Okay, October 16, 1929, Irving Fisher, an economist. Stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. Uh, It was, I believe, uh, seven days later that uh, there was the 1929 stock crash, which plunged the country into a Great Depression. He was wrong. December 4, 1941, Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox. Whatever happens, the U.S. Navy is not going to be caught napping. Well, they were. Uh, Just three days later, uh, the Japanese uh, fleet did the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. But he was so certain of the way things are. Finally, 1958, Business Week magazine made this claim. With so many foreign cars already in sale here, the Japanese auto industry isn't likely to carve out a big slice of the U.S. market. Uh, Again, poor prognosis there. But uh, it's an issue of certainty. We can be so certain about things, about the way things are, but then... Reality takes things in a different direction. There's a subtle danger about the presumption of certainty, because we could be so sure about things. 
And it's because we've made conclusions about ourselves, about others, about uh, the way things are or where they should be. And it can lead us into, into trouble. It can even be toxic for the body of Christ when we can be so certain about things. Let's look at Luke 15. And first of all, just get a flavor for how this chapter, this story unfolds. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Here, just in these first two verses, we have the whole setup for the rest of the chapter. We've got two images. We've got Jesus with the tax collectors and sinners gathering around him. Certainly, there are many multitudes that are gathering around him. But specifically, these are mentioned, the tax collectors and sinners. And why are they gathering around Jesus? Well, he attracted crowds everywhere he went. But why did he attract these crowds? Because they wanted to be with him. They wanted to hear him. Because what he said was not what the Pharisees and teachers of the law were saying. They knew that he cared for them. They knew that he loved them. They knew that they mattered to Jesus. So they're crowding around, anticipating what he would have to say and teach. But then the other scene we have are the Pharisees and teachers of the law. They're muttering. You could probably add murmuring in there. More than likely, they've... You just have the image that they're just over there watching what's happening. Look, look at that. Look what's happening there. He's, those tax collectors, those misfits, those the sinners. He's touching them. He's being defiled. Oh. So we have these two images. The ones crowding around Jesus, excited to hear what he has to say. The other crowd, judging. The Pharisees were certain about us and them. It was very clear to them who belonged to their tribe and everyone else. They presumed their reality was God's reality. The passage that Roger read, there is a, right at the end, is uh, some key verses from the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus is teaching, he, he talks about the eye. And he says that the eye is the lamp of the body. If our eyes are healthy, then our whole body will be full of light. But if our eyes are bad, then our whole body will be filled with darkness. But then he has this this one phrase. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It's like a paradox. But what he's saying is, 
If you think that what you, the way you see, what you're filled with is light, reality, but really it's not the way things are, then you are in deep darkness because you think that which is dark is actually light. And that's where the Pharisees are. As they are murmuring and muttering, watching this scene, passing judgment, they're feeling like they see the light. They know how things are. They're certain of who, who is us and them. But really, they're full of darkness. And that is leads us to the question, are we sure that we celebrate what God celebrates? Or are we sure that God celebrates what we celebrate? Which is it? And that's really the intro to this whole passage, because as it moves along, we enter into a series of stories. But first of all, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they like to be seen and heard. The passage that Roger read demonstrates that whole sense of how that as the Pharisees, when they fast, they like to be pointed out that they're fasting. And when they're praying, they like for people to see that they're praying. And in that process, they have their reward for they're receiving what they're looking for. They expected respect and deference. It's like they would communicate to the people. Uh, you should fear us. You should respect us, even though we don't really care about your lives. They created their self-righteousness. The Pharisees had taken the law and then they had uh, shaped it in very specific and delineated ways so that they could be sure that they are being obedient. And in a sense, they're creating their own righteousness by following the rules that they had set for themselves and became then the gatekeepers of religious purity. They knew who was in and who was out. And they guarded that gate. I fear that sometimes we are, can be gate guarders of who is in and who is out. But Jesus' very presence challenged their position and authority in society. Because he was attracting crowds and they were gathering around. And he would say things like, you have heard it said, well, by the Pharisees, but I say to you. He would say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the teaching of the Pharisees. Matthew 23 gives all the woes against the Pharisees because he calls them hypocrites, blind guides, leading the blind. And why is Jesus so hard on them? It's because they are rooted in the certainty that they know God, know what God thinks, and he's on their side. Let's look into the story. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. 
Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Rejoicing in heaven. Something, the the sheep is lost, the sheep is found. He calls everyone together. Let's rejoice. Just like heaven rejoices when sinners repent. Then it continues on. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. A coin is lost, but then it is found, and there's great rejoicing. And Luke opens it up just a little bit more broadly about how that the host of heaven, the angels, are rejoicing. Why? Well, it's because humanity is returning to its destiny. In other words, when one sinner repents, it's that person is coming back to what the person was created to be, in absolute intimate fellowship with the eternal Lord throughout eternity. Indirectly, through these two stories, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. Rather than rejoicing that the tax collectors and sinners are crowding around Jesus, they're passing judgment on them. And Jesus is rebuking them, saying, the host of heaven rejoices when sinners repent. Then we come to a lost son. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Here we have a son that is repudiating the natural order of the way things are. For him to, as the, particularly the younger son, to demand his portion of the estate... It's like declaring that he wished his father was dead so that he could have what was due him. And this is a scenario really that played out in the whole community and brought shame. It wasn't just something private between the son and the father. But in order for a son at that time to receive a third of the estate, because being the younger son, he would receive half what Uh, the older brother would receive. So he would get his third. And that would have to be a liquidation project. 
the, the, the property and perhaps herds and things like that would have to be sold in order to give this younger son the capacity to have his third of the estate. And this is something that would play out before not just the family, but the whole community. Everyone would be known the shame that this son is bringing on the father and on the family and on the community. In this way, he's actually disowning his father. I'm taking my portion and off I'm going and I never look back. He's rebelling by breaking all the rules, all the conventions and all the traditions. He's breaking them all and going his own way with foolish, wild, indiscriminate living. And he's reduced to feeding pigs in the end. And as Jesus is telling the story, you could just imagine the Jews hearing this, and particularly the Pharisees listening to this. I mean, the disgust. He's, he's pushing all the buttons that would just set them off. There's nothing worse that this person could do, this younger son, than to end up feeding pigs. Then, verse 17, he came to his senses. While he's lost, the son is found. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is usually the part of the story that we are so familiar with and is so thrilling, the contrast of what happens. I mean, this younger son, he could have been sitting there feeding the pigs thinking, you know, my friends back home, they're probably doing all right. I'm going to go back and see my friends and hang out with them. I bet they could take care of me. No, he's completely humbled in his heart and life, both in reality but also in his senses. His eyes became healthy. He was seeing the true light. His selfish defiance, that darkness was gone. And humility and a contrite heart compels him to go back to his father. And then we see that he's truthfully seeing himself and others. So what happens? A son is lost, a son is found. There's feasting and there's celebration. He was lost and is found. He was dead, but now he's alive again. Let's celebrate. And through it, we see the father's anticipation 
and his compassion, love, mercy, and grace, and forgiveness. All of these things are just a cascading force. The son doesn't even have a chance to finish his speech. But he's restored to a former position that he had. The father's not really being soft on sin at all, but he's longing for repentance and return. The Lord longs for sinners to come home. We know also that repentance brings out full restoration. All that had transpired is forgiven. He has a ring on his finger, the best robe. He's a son again. And repentance also involves the rejoicing of the whole community. The whole celebration was open. And it's a picture of lost humanity returning to the intended life that was designed for us. We were intended for the community of humanity to be in eternal fellowship with the Father, that we would enjoy him and he would enjoy us. That was God's design. And when sinners repent, it's returning to our original purpose of eternal fellowship with Almighty God. But now we come to really the heart of the story, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So there have been there are two lost sons. But he's completely out of touch, this older one. There's no anticipation, no compassion, no love, no grace, no mercy, no forgiveness, no respect. Instead, he's consumed with anger and bitterness and absolutely consumed with himself. He's indifferent to his father and brother and the reality that they're experiencing. This whole scene of celebration and return. He's rebelling by keeping all the rules. See, both sons had something that they wanted from the father. They had two different strategies for getting it. One, the younger one, by breaking all the traditions, all the conventions, he was getting what he wanted from his father. We see the older brother also. He 
He wanted to get from his father by keeping all the rules, slating, obeying all the orders. But it wasn't because of a heart for the father. What is what he could get out of it? And he's preferring an exclusive celebration with his friends. You never even gave me a young goat so I can celebrate with my friends. Oh, he wants celebration. But he wants celebration with his own. He's lost. Two brothers are lost, but only one is found. But look at the progression of this. Verse 24. Or, yeah, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. But then in the commentary of the older brother, he says, uh, he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. But then the father at the end of the chapter says, my son. The father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. The older brother won't even acknowledge his brother. The older brother says, this son of yours completely disowning him. But when referring to the younger son, the father says, this son of mine. But then when he's talking to the older brother, he's saying, this brother of yours. What's he doing here? The older brother didn't consider his brother to be his own. He's completely disowning him and pushing him away. But the father is emphasizing Two things. The older brother's family relationship as well as the family obligation. Because in order for the older brother to enter into the celebration, he has to be reconciled with his younger brother. The only way that he can truly celebrate is that he be restored in relationship with his younger brother. But... The older brother had already disowned him, whether he was lost or found. The, the older brother didn't want to have anything to do with the younger brother. I think that we, too, have this tendency that we disown those that we don't, don't approve of or disapprove of. Whether it's fellow Christians or lost humanity. I mean, we can only just look as, as far as the uh, proliferation of separation among Christians, which can demonstrate this. Uh, but also, we hear it a lot, being uh, largely in ministry among in, in Muslim regions. Uh, we have heard with our own ears people say, well, the lo- whole lot of them should just be shot. And it breaks our hearts, it breaks the heart of the Lord 
For that is not what he designed for his humanity nor for his body. See, the older brother assumed his value to his father was in his position, in his work and obedience, not in being a son and a brother. That's what the father wanted. He's calling them my son. You know, he's just emphasizing that's what matters is the relationship. But yet, I think we struggle with that. That often we can see more value in our accomplishments or in our associations or our purity than really just being in relationship with our father and our brothers and sisters. The older brother is outside his father's celebration. The story ends there. He's outside. The father comes out and pleads with him to come in. But the story ends. He's outside the celebration. Are we sure that God celebrates what we celebrate? There's something else to see here. Notice in verse 3, way back at the beginning. Then Jesus told them this parable. I have the New International here, and it says, it divides it like this. The parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost son. Actually, that's not right. It's one parable. We see in verse 8 that as it continues on, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins. Verse 11, Jesus continued. It's one parable with three different scenes. Something precious is lost. That which is precious is found. And there's a shared rejoicing. But think about the stories. There's there's another element in the story. A sheep was lost. But what was the response? A coin was lost. What was the response? What's missing here? I think I heard it. It's the search. When the sheep was lost, there was a a concerted search by the shepherd to go find the sheep. And when it was found, then there was rejoicing. A woman loses a coin. She lights a lamp and sweeps the house until she finds it. And then there's rejoicing. But then there's a lost son. And there's no search. Who is supposed to be searching for the lost brother? It's his brother. The older brother is supposed to be searching. But all he wants is to celebrate with his friends. He's slaving. He's doing, he's keeping all the rules. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were keeping all the rules. They were making sure everybody is in and out. And as they're murmuring and muttering and casting judgment, They're so certain that if they were to look behind them, the Lord would be going, yeah, just look at those down there. 
those tax collectors and sinners. But God was in front of them, right there in Jesus. And they had no idea. Jesus is calling the Pharisees, stop this, what you've got going on, and go look for the lost brothers and sisters of Israel. Instead, you're laying up for them burdens that they can't even bear, and you don't lift, even put a finger to help lift that burden off of them. The brother was supposed to be looking for his brother. The mission of the church is finding lost brothers and bringing them to the Father's table to celebrate together. What the Father needed was for his older son to say, I'll go find him. No matter where he is, I will find him and I will bring him back to you because I know how much you love him. I know how much you want to forgive him. I will find him and I will say to him, come home, come back to the Father. He's longing for you to be with him. That's what mission is. Looking for lost brothers and sisters. Are we looking for them? Or are we just celebrating with our friends? Who do we think is not worthy to be at God's table? Or are we rejoicing with everyone that is there? What have we decided about some at God's table? Have we disowned a brother or sister because we disapprove of them, their behavior, or who they hang out with, or who they vote for? Do we feel justified about us and them boxes that we put some people in? These are our challenges. Are we disciples who celebrate what God celebrates? Or are we like the Pharisees that have our own agenda, wanting to celebrate with our own friends? See, God's table, the Lord's table, is a fellowship of repentant sinners, a fellowship of difference, people who are different, a place of love and forgiveness, a celebration of grace. This is the Lord's table. Because this is what it's all about. The chapter begins with who eats with Jesus? Well, the Lord's table is open to us all. And that's why they were crowding around him. Those that knew that they were sinners and knew that they needed him. Not the ones that felt self-righteous. The Lord's table is open to all, accepting all. Are we bringing lost brothers and sisters to the Lord's table? This is our goal. This is our challenge and our opportunity as ambassadors in the mission of God in this world today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a really precious story. Lord, we celebrate repentant sinners. Or do we? 
Lord, forgive us for we are often not looking for our lost brothers and sisters, our fellow humans, those created in your image who are still lost in sin, separated from you, Father. Help us, Father, to see this opportunity that we have before us to search for our lost brothers and sisters and to love those who are already at God's table with fullness, forgiveness, grace, mercy, and most of all, love. Thank you, Father, for this story, for your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Ken. We're going to...